Welcome to Building the Oracle, a podcast about two dudes building a publishing house and film studio from the ground up with outsized imaginations and undersized energy reserves. Richard's dad. I'm your host, Jay Swanson. And I'm Richard Bilkey. And today's guest is famous within the expat community for her blockbuster book, The New Paris. It's Lindsay Tremuda. We talked about making it in Paris, publishing, and the challenges of building a business overseas. Honestly, it was a great conversation. I feel really encouraged by Lindsay's experience, but also her perspective on thriving both in the city and in the publishing hustle, which are both real challenges. What about you, Richard? There's a lot of value talking to people who have made their business in in Paris, uh, especially in the publishing sphere. And it's great to see people who've succeeded here, uh, but also really good to talk to them about the challenges of, of building a business in Paris because it's yeah. very different. It's a very different experience from doing it in the US or, or in Australia. And, uh, and being able to talk to her about some of the challenges she's faced and, and how she overcame them, it was really, really valuable. Yeah, it is, it is its own mini nightmare. But before we dive into today's nightmares and conversations, I wanted to give a quick shout out to today's unofficial sponsor, Air France. I had a great time working with them over the holidays, even though that's going to be a long ways behind us by the time this episode comes out and if you'd like to see the results be sure to check out my behind the scenes vlog over on youtube that's right this is actually a plug for my youtube channel zach will be sure to link it in the notes speaking of zach we finally have him here in the office with us recording today which is really fun hey zach with that let's get into today's conversation with our friend Lindsay tremuda Welcome to Building the Oracle. I'm your host, Jay Swanson, and today I'm lucky to be joined by one of our expat idols, Lindsay Tremuda. Oh my gosh, wow, thank you. <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> Lindsay is a journalist writing for such powerhouses as the New York Times and Fortune, but she's best known in our circles as Lost in Cheeseland, the name of her fantastic blog and Instagram account chronicling life in a changing Paris. Go give her a follow, obviously. She wrote a fantastic book on the cultural shifts in our hometown, the new Paris, which you will find displayed prominently in good cafes all over the city. Her forthcoming book, The New New Parisienne focuses on the amazing women that are redefining the term and is set for release this April. Go pre-order that right now as well once you're done following her on Instagram. And if that wasn't impressive enough, Lindsay's own podcast, The New Paris Podcast, is well into its third season. Lindsay, it's wonderful to have you on our fledgling podcast. Oh my gosh, I am bold. Oh, that intro was unbelievable. <laughs> Thank you. That, that's actually all we're here for. Thanks for listening to the show today. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and that's it. It's See you later. Yeah, it's nice it. to meet that's you. Absolutely it. <laughs> we can start with the basic, the necessary to get out of the way, but also something that we're really interested in, which is how did you get here? Why are you in mm, Paris? The ultimate story. Right. Because it feels a little cliche, but everybody no, really no, wants to know. Everybody wants to know. It's, and it's, it's a valid question. And how everyone do has their own little story on ready to go. 100%. And, and also everyone has a slightly different story. Sometimes those stories are radically different. Mine is, I mean, I was a, I wouldn't even say I was truly a Francophile. I was in love with the language more than the culture itself. And so I started learning French when I was 13 in middle school when we're forced to learn language. And, you know, we have no idea what that's going to allow us to do in life. And so I just kept going with it. And, and my parents are like, great, keep going. You'll figure it out. And then it got to the point where I was a bit worried because I was still only interested in speaking and reading French. And, you know, I didn't want to become a teacher. You know, what do you what do you do? It's kind of a complicated question. What do you do when you study language if you don't want to go into using that language for interpretation or translation or something like that? So ultimately, that led to studies in Paris. I came when I was in high school first did like a big discovery tour of less Paris and actually more of the, you know, sort of Normandy, Loire Valley, sort of the surrounding areas and realized it was amazing. So 
I started to love the culture that I was seeing then. Um, and then in college, I continued pursuing French linguistics and literature studies. And then came when I was the summer of my junior year and for about seven weeks. And that sort of confirmed, okay, I was clearly born in the wrong place. I need to figure out how to make this, you know, a more regular home. Well, of course, when you're a college student, that's not actually possible. So what do you do? You go back with a university. Um, And so I did my last semester of undergraduate studies at Boston University's campus here. And then I never left. Um, I met someone along the way. So a Frenchman who I later married. But that was just sort of like the motivator to come back more quickly Mm. and to figure that out. But after I graduated, I just looked for work. And the interesting thing is with that Boston University program, there was an internship component, which you know, for most undergraduate study abroad programs, that does not, you know, they're not trying to put you into a corporate setting here. But that was really key for me because I interned at L'Oreal. And although I had no intention of going in that direction later, that was something to put on my CV. And it got me interviews, which ultimately ended with, well, you don't have working papers, so we can't really give you a job. Exactly. even a, Right. So, but it still opened a few doors. How did you overcome that though? I mean, the, that's the roadblock everybody run, Americans at least run into and Australians, I'm sure very similar. How do you get over that? You really transition. You can't get over it unless you go back to school, get married either to a French person or a European at that point. Right. It doesn't really matter. Or you manage to be one of these lucky few that might be in like the 1% that do get sponsored by a company. But this was what I I graduated from. uh, I finished my undergraduate studies in 2007. So this was just before the crisis, the the crash. No one was taking those chances. And why hire an American when you had a British person who could already had working papers, right? Soon that might not be the case. But you know, that's been the, the dominant response. And you know, it's funny, because in the US, I think for so long, they think uh, people in general, like, older generations, including my parents were like, but you speak, you write and you speak English. That's going to be the leg up they need. I'm like, no, they don't actually. They find other people with those skills in the EU. So it was tricky. Ultimately, it's why I decided to go back to school. And that was not in my normal plan. Um, But I did. I, I went to grad school. I went to the American University of Paris, studied global communication, partly because I realized like my life was going to be in France and the French the sort of young people in school always intern. That's the equivalent. The internship is the equivalent of our entry level work in the U.S., right? So they expect you when you're entering the job market that you've already had those sort of internships style experiences so that you're more than operational. In the U.S., it's sort of like, okay, you've just graduated from college. Here's a low paying entry level job, but we're going to train you. Here it's the internship that does that. And so once I understood that that was sort of how I was going to maybe be able to get in the in the door, I found this grad program that had a six-month internship component. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do what I need to do to get the types of experiences that will allow me to be hopefully better off when I'm ready to start looking for a job again. And what was that visa that you ended up getting? So I I was on a student visa, but then when I was in grad school, I got married. Aha. I'm not saying this was strategic. We were heading toward (laughs) marriage anyway, but by that point- Never seen him again, but it was really good while it lasted. I, I wish you will. We had already been dating for two years, living together. So it's sort of like, that's not a normal amount of time. And then we are still married. So that's 11 years. Congrats. That worked out. I think yeah. I think it was not a white 
mariage blanche. You, I think you it got, was okay. Get, yeah, that worked. No, and for anybody listening at home, that that happens. People actually do get married for visas, and it never works out well. So at least I've no, I, I know a lot of really stories that have ended terribly. But right, right. But I will say, like, had we not wanted to go down that road, right. I don't know where I'd be. I'd probably have finished my grad program and then been, you know, in a really, really difficult position. So we're very interested on this podcast about the decision people make to, to oh. take a creative career, to jump in, especially if it comes as kind of that, that uh, what is it, the reconversion professionnel right, right, that right. they call it here, the, the, the career change. It's interesting that you, uh, your career beforehand in the marketing and, and these sort of things, all those things you talked about, they, they're really, they're good basic training for what sure. You do now. Oh no, 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 absolutely. And I would not have changed that. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, everything from the SEO keywords and then the marketing and the, and obviously going back into the social media. So they seem to have been accidentally, as it may be, but giving you a good foundation for what you're doing now. And that I think the sounds like the decision to publish or, or that came out of the blue a bit, but it was real turning point for you. Oh, a hundred percent. And I and also I think that um, we try so much to control what's going to happen to us. And I, when I look back at this trajectory, I see someone who really needed to just roll with the punches yeah. and then it does work out. That's not true for everybody, but I do think that it was, it was traumatic at some points because I was like, I don't think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. But, you know, putting in that time and working hard on the side on other things, you know, they, they, we hear all, we hear stories like this all the time where a passion project becomes yeah. what someone does full time. Does that mean that I don't, I mean, I still help certain brands, you know, I still consult because that pays the bills too. So it's not that I wanted to necessarily give up some of the other types of creative work that I was doing, but I just wanted to be able to control that balance. Yep. Yeah. That's and cool. so, uh, it, it does every step of the way does lead you, but you have to have the, the sort of faith that it will. Yeah. I think that's key. Uh, I mean, you, live a life or you know when people look at what you do i think there's a lot of responses one is that, oh you're living the dream this sounds you know amazing but you know hearing your story and 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 you know watching jay as well there's so much hard work that goes into what you do behind the scenes and also a lot of people i think say oh look i could i could have written that i could do this but you spend so much time in those early days just writing and wondering whether anything's going to happen and, and that perseverance uh, i try to count up i think there was about 160 odd articles that you've got on your portfolio oh my god well, I don't even think that's everything because I was actually updating my, my site yesterday and I was like, oh, this takes forever. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, I don't add some stuff because... Yeah, but that's, so, yeah so going back to 2011 or so, I mean, they're, they're, they, yeah, they build up. Of, yeah, they build it up, builds up. And that's a lot of, that's, that's a huge amount of work. I want to go back to the book a little bit. I'm, I'm, I've got a book publishing background. Which Aha! Is one, yeah, so it's one of the reasons that I've, I'm working you with Jay. You buried the lead. I, I did not I, know okay, that. Okay, oh, there we go. There we go. There it is. The... Uh, the, the little um, twinkle in the eye that says, oh, I can mine you for information about the publishing. The classic down under switcheroo. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, your first book, uh, The New Paris, uh, that's actually how I first became aware of you because as I said in the intro, like it's, you see the book in a lot of the, book, the cafes right. around, around Paris and that was actually, you know, I would sit down and I'd, I'd pick the book up and, and flick through and, and see people I knew and, and places that I didn't and, uh, and that's how I first found your name. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously that's a very localised example sure. but it's 
as I said before, it sounds like a pretty big turning point for you. I wanted that experience. Like, how did that come to you? Abrams is a wonderful publisher. Mm-hmm. They do some of the best kids' books out there, but they also do. some of the some of the best um, uh, illustrated, beautiful coffee table mm-hmm. illustrated books. So, congratulations on getting such a great you. publisher. Thank you. And obviously, they've they loved your book enough to go for a, a second book with right. you. And I can tell you how that happened. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to hear your story with that and, and your relationship with your publisher and how that might be a bit different to the relationship you've got with, with the magazine publishers. <laughs> and, and oh, boy. Um, so so what happened was is when I was at the, nearing the end of my time at that agency, um, I, again, started having that existential freak out. Like, I got to – what am I doing here? I need to leave. But um, I also have this desire to write a bigger – to write a book. I think it's like now. I think I have the idea. And the idea was I've been writing for, you know, other outlets about all these changes in Paris, but separately. Like, is there something that could bring it all together that talks about what is the reason we're seeing all this change? It didn't just happen overnight and it's not just, you know, suddenly the French, you know, caught up to to the kind of forward-moving concepts and ideas that were happening in other cities. It, it, there were, you know, societal factors. And so I started putting together a proposal and I had a couple of friends who had done books and they said, I have an agent when you're ready and you have something to show, show me and then I'll, you know, see if I can connect you to an agent. So it started with an agent and my friend Will Taylor, who's a a British author and content creator now based in New York, connected me with his agent. She saw the document I put together and she was like, I want to have a phone call. So we had a phone call. She loved the idea. She said, this feels very new and fresh, obviously, like no pun intended new, but you know, it, it felt different from what we, you know, what she had seen. Um, and she represented a lot of really, you know, good authors that I had recognized different industries, but, um, and so she helped me basically refine the proposal, incorporate things I hadn't thought of, beef it up until we got to the point where she says, so this is maybe about February, uh, of 2015, she said, I think, I think we've got it and I can start shopping it around. So she had her sort of like a list of public, you know, a list publishers she wanted to reach out to first. And Abrams is the one who wanted to talk. And so I had a call that March with, uh, an editor who, you know, just sort of wanted to hear me address some of the things maybe that she was, you know, worried about, which was, you know, okay, how do you handle the fact that things change? It's not a guide, you saying it's not a guidebook, which it's not, but you know, things might clothes, people might move on to other things. And I, and my answer to that was, but that's fine because this is supposed to document a time of change and those people will go on to do other things. And it doesn't mean that their impact is erased from the story. So, you know, she just sort of wanted to hear perspective on other things, you know, go beyond the proposal. And then, then I waited. And then April, like mid April, I was at an event. Um, I had just left the, the company. I was at an event in the South of France and I got an email and I like needed to leave the room and just have a freak out. And I got the green light. So then it was, you know, negotiating the terms and all of that. But Abrams wanted to move forward. And um, and that that changed everything in the sense that, you know, everything that I had started, I was I had started uh, consulting for BETC, which is another agency on some travel brands and things like that. And um, and I was still writing stories for the press. And then I had to get immediately to work on researching and figuring out, okay, how am I going to put this story together? Getting the photographer on board who's based in New York. There are a lot of logistical issues with putting that 
book yeah, together. Absolutely. Flash forward, it did very well. Abrams is very good with distribution too and special yeah. distribution. So it got into a lot of small shops too in, in America, even in Australia. I was it still pops up at some of the most wildly yeah, I, surprising I to, places. And I used to sell a lot of Abrams stuff in Australia. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So it's so cool. Like it's so cool to see where it ends up beyond just bookstores. And, you know, I really made it one of my, you know, like full-time jobs to keep promoting it and finding ways to get that message out there. And authors need, it's a sad fact, but today the authors have to do so much of the legwork. And so, you know, they get it out there. They have the great distribution. They'll support, you know, some early events and things like that. And then it's on you to keep that story alive. Um, and so the podcast came out of, you know, sort of was an idea of a podcasting is big and wasn't big here yet in France. Mm. And B was like, I, want to get behind out of you know out from behind the computer sometimes and i like talking to people so why not continue the story of the book through that format hence why i started it when i did it was actually launched before the book came out to make sure i had enough content and then con continued going the second book came in my contract it's they have first right of refusal so i have to go to abrams with you know i had to go to them with any other idea but i Loved the experience working with my editor. She understood. She was supportive. She gave me a lot of free reign. I wanted it to be with them anyway. Like I, I understood that process and they understood what I was about. Yep. And so that was, um, it got the green light in 2018 and now it's coming out in April. But again, so it's, it's part of the same family. It'll, it'll have a similar, um, I mean, not a similar, in a way, a similar aesthetic, but, you know, it's because it's the same publisher, they know how to package that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it's, and it's a wonderful experience. It's so much work Yeah. and it's exhausting. And I think I'm like still recovering. And just as I'm recovering, it goes back into it because now it's, we're starting the planning phase for it coming out into the world. So it's, it's different kinds of work for more than two years. Yeah. Easily. Yeah, and I mean, it ties it a little bit into our conversation in our last episode with Natasha, who is a, a fiction author, but mm. you know, very similar, different, very different book, but a, a similar thing. The, the, the amount of work that's put on the author, it doesn't stop it at handing in that manuscript. Never. The, the new book is The New Parisienne, right. uh, which is a delicious, uh, <laughs> nice little take on the, the old title. Um, I'll talk about that. In the, I'll ask you about that yep. in a second. I was interested in the way you said that, that The New Paris, the, the, the idea of the book for you was to really tie up, you've been talking about changing Paris mm -hmm. a lot in, in different articles but they weren't collected and and the book was a wonderful way for you to really pull all of that together and and it's almost like a little bit of a personal brand for you now mm -hmm. um, you have really become a voice for this new Paris is changing Paris it's interesting you know since I've arrived in Paris I think a lot of people who've arrived in Paris in the last 10 years or so have seen this change firsthand um, but there's also a lot of fear around it there's this idea that either that the new Paris means the death of the old Paris or that the new Paris is simply a Brooklynization of Paris oh um, hate so no, <laughs> no, everyone no, I, writes about that. Yeah, why? Yeah. Why is Brooklyn always the starting point? But no, to respond. I mean, you know, what what makes the new Paris like? What's it's a balance. What's new about it, and what's Parisian about the new Paris? Well, it's a balance. It's so the the idea that somehow old Paris, like, I'm not saying let's let's raise Notre Dame and the Eiffel Tower because oh, topical. You know, so dull. I didn't. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> That's not what I'm suggesting at all. I'm so dull. Wait, are you behind that? Shh. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. What I'm. What my my whole feeling is that you know, as someone who lives in the city, and you all live in the city, so you know, there is nothing wrong with wanting different 
things than what ends up in a guidebook in, in a, in, in, you know, in literature, in pop culture, which is the romantic part of the city, which I'm not saying should not exist anymore, nor should it um, exist less. I just think it needs to be, um, the city needs to be understood as a place where things are happening and where the city is once again, a leader in a number of arenas, whether it's in food, pastry, urban development, you know, climate action, you know, the, the list goes on and on. But, you know, if we keep focusing on the same story, what happens to the rest of what's happening? And, you know, it, it's easy to say like, well, you know, who cares? Boo hoo, Paris is getting shortchanged. But it's like Paris is the number, the number two city, the most second most visited city in the world. I think there's enough interest in this place to tell the broader story. Yep. And so what's new? It's, it's, entrepreneurial people it's the answer to how you balance old and new you know heritage and forward forward looking ideas how do you handle this deep heritage when it comes to culinary traditions and make it more interesting do it differently do it better uh incorporate outside influence i think it's it's for me it's how the city acts like the global city it's always supposed to have been because it is a global capital and and to move away from this this idea that a lot of foreign travelers hold which is that the city should should somehow just be a platform for ultra french things yeah french food, a living museum basically. a living museum and it's like well why would you expect the French to want to have only those things themselves. They're people who live in this place. Why shouldn't they have access to other things? And I think that's where we, the danger is in the way that Paris gets packaged is that you forget that it's a real city with problems, with struggles, with people trying to m make things better for the residents. Where you know, Paris syndrome comes from. Yeah, because it lets you down if all you think of it is, you know. Hopefully not to the point you need to get medevaced, but yeah. <laughs> You know that's a thing, right? I know, yeah. I know. Mostly for, for Japanese visitors. Yeah, they, they have the like Japanese, psychologists on hand. Mm -hmm, the basically. embassy has a hotline for it and they have to medevac, I think, over 20 people a year like, out of the country. Because the, the disappointment is so palpable that they have a psychotic break, yeah. See, whereas American tourists who have this, the same, you know, they've bought into the same myth, they come and they'll just complain to all their friends like, Paris is so overrated, you know, but- right. don't, don't come in August then. right. Or if you want, if you want quieter, less angry uh, streets, yeah, that could be the good time to come. I think that, that, but this goes back to what I was saying earlier too about why this. I have a very similar motivator in that front of I was tired of hearing people complain about that and say it was overrated and whatever else. And for me, it was like you just don't know. You don't know it. Good, the good parts of Paris. And if you if you went to a spot that is like a literal stone's throw away from Notre Dame and had an overpriced over roasted coffee, bad service, whatever it was that, yeah, that, that comes with the, the territory. Like you, you can find good coffee. You yeah. can find good experience, good service, good food. It's all here. It's just a matter of, of finding it. And you're right. Like it has been prepackaged, but I think it also is like, we're going way into the Paris territory and we should probably uh, just take our ad break here in a second. That's my fault. No, no, my fault. no, it's not your fault. It's not your well, fault no, at I, all. I, I want to take it a little bit further, but finish you. Okay. Well, I was just say that the, it, it also is a hand in hand thing where the, the, I think this is true. This is universally true for humankind. And I think that the French get a bad rap for it when it's not fair, that a lot of these ideas are new to them, like coffee, for example, and like good, quote unquote, good coffee, well-roasted coffee, whatever, specialty coffee is an expat 
thing right now more so than a French thing, but that's, that's steadily changing. They need to oh, be introduced yeah. to it. Right. And like all of us need to be introduced to it in one way or another. I think that that's just generally going to be the case. So the, there's that the French are tend to be on the, uh, the adoption curve. They tend to be a little bit on the, the slow, they're slow to adopt new things, but that's culturally, they like to watch. Yeah. See what works and then you jump know why? on that Because later. they're risk averse. They are risk averse. Well, yeah. Not only that, I, I mean, coming from Australia, which, and, and obviously coming from the States, you know, we're nations that were immigrant based and, and it was a melting pot and it was make, you know, you, you took all these other cultures and, and turned them into something new. Whereas the thing that struck me coming to Europe was I, I just couldn't believe so many different cultures packed so closely together were able to maintain that identity. Right. And that's a tension that, that exists uh, all over Europe. Um, how do they how do they keep that identity in the face of globalization? How do they, how do they move, you know, progress and how do they adopt these things, but how do they still keep that cultural identity? And that's why the French, you know, their language, they, they're, they're really strong about sticking and keeping their language strong. And well, they don't always succeed in a very diplomatic way. Of course not. But that's because there's a tension and because right. there's, you know, there's this, this movement, but you know, the French are very averse to or you know they're very cautious about any sort of americanisms coming in and, and american work practices or, or very you know mcdonald's coming in they, they, they try to control these things like when amazon came in like they they're very protective of their way of life and their and their culture and and i don't i don't mind that at all i mean that's why we come to see paris that's why we come to that because of that because they've managed to maintain that that identity and i i'm try to be very careful to respect that right. but at the same time I really want my flat white. Right. Um, <laughs> because I'm Australian. And well, and I think you hit on something too, which I actually feel uh, from one of Oliver's podcasts, he had a guest that brought up something when I was in a point recognized. I don't know if you struggle with this, but I have an inner snob that I fight with as well because oh. like a lot of my <laughs> life is now based on recommendations and I'm making recommendations and I'm, I'm introducing people to places and telling them where I think they should go while they're in Paris. And so I'm a lot pickier about what I where I send people and what I say is, oh, yeah. is good or bad. And that has robbed me of some personal joy in life at the same time, because <laughs> I go into places and I don't enjoy it as much. And he had a guest that was like, Hey, it's Paris. Just sit on the corner, have a glass of wine with whoever it is. It doesn't matter. And I was like, you know, that's right. Like, cause I love beer and I, you know, it's easy to make fun of cheaper quote unquote crappier beers, but you know what, whatever, if they have a um, beer that I'm not going to name now that I've said that, but if they, all they have is <laughs> off the shelf brand a, and, um, you know what, and it's overpriced and it costs you 10 euros for a pint, whatever, you know, at least you get to sit on a corner with good friends and enjoy the view, enjoy the city and just have a moment to enjoy life. Right? Oh, I've stopped, I've stopped, um, judging people who go to, you know, Café de Flore and, you know, Les Deux Magots and all of that, because frankly, it is kind of lovely to be on that terrace mm. at certain moments of the day right. when it's not full of foreigners, when it's actually local, you know, Saint-Germain people. I think it's like a, as a as a purely sociological, ethnographic kind of experience. It's really fascinating. And to have a hot chocolate, like, fine. I'm not going to get coffee there. Absolutely not. But I will have a hot chocolate. Like, do what you want to do. Yeah. yeah. So I, I started from a position of like, come on, there's better than that. And now it's more like yeah. what you've said where you come around and you're like, you know what? Some people just want, you know, like you can, you can love the Michelin restaurants and love a kebab at, you know, from a dinky. Love me a kebab. Right. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's the thing we, we have to, you can take what you want from these experiences. 
Speaking of Paris, and if you're coming to Paris anytime soon and you need some recommendations, I wrote an entire guide to the city. It's in a PDF format, so you can download it, put it on your phone. No need to carry heavy paper around with you. Lots of recommendations. Arrondissement by Arrondissement on everything that I love in the city. These are not going to be your classic recommendations, but they're local, delicious food, beer, coffee, wine, you name it. It's in there, as well as a whole bunch of essays on how to avoid scams, where to stay in the city, and whether or not you should even come to Paris. The short answer to that is yes. There's a lot of great stuff in it. It's about 120 pages long, something like that. Feel free to grab a copy, download it, purchase it today. Go to jswanson.me, jswanson.me, like me, me, myself, and I, and you'll see it right at the top. And download that today before your trip to Paris. Now back to the show. And we're back. And for those of you who have listened to our first two episodes, and if you haven't, go back and listen to them. But for those of you who have listened to the first two episodes, you'll know that the main goal of this podcast is really to chronicle our journey, Jay's journey and and me helping him, to build a publishing house and a film studio around the story universe that Jay's been writing in for over a decade now. Um, The name of the podcast, this podcast, Building the Oracle, is taken directly from that universe, uh, where the overarching title for the series is The Oracle of the Dread Gods. Now, Jay has been able to do a huge amount on his own already, writing, the vlogging, all of that. But it's got to the point where he, he really needs to find help, you know, to, to really build what he wants to build. He's, he's having to bring in people like me and Kate and, and Zach, who's producing this podcast right now. And that means sort of collaborating. It's a bit of a new thing for Jay to collaborate like that. And I want to talk to you, Lindsay, a little bit about your collaborations. Mm. Uh, because Lost in Cheeseland, very much your own brand. Right. Um, and, you know, you really built that up on your own. But... You've also done a number of collaborations through your time. I'm thinking of the photographers that you've collaborated with mm-hmm. on books. I'm thinking of your podcast, the first series. You you had a co-host with um, with Alice Kavanagh. And then, of course, you've already talked about your time with uh, Abrams and obviously all the magazines. Mm-hmm. So how, do, how have you found going from a from someone, you know, building this content system on your own to then collaborating with other people? How has that worked for you? And and what advice have you got for two people who are who novices are really starting a pretty ambitious collaboration. Right I think what's good is that you both already know each other. You know what your strengths are. And that's step one. So, you know, with me and Alice, for example, mm. when she, she's the one who actually was like, I think you should turn this book into a podcast. So, you know, I probably wouldn't have had the confidence to do that. So there's Alice. Alice sort of plants the seed and then you know, I said, well, I'd be a little bit nervous about doing this all by myself. Can we do it together? And so that's what we did. We did, you know, she had certain contacts that she was able to bring in for the first season. I had mine and we would, and we were learning along the way, which was really cool. You know, we were learning how to interview people on radio. We were learning, or sorry, you know, audio. We were learning how to juggle the questioning between us. You know, it was, it was really interesting for our, our friendship too, to like get to do something really unique together on the on the side and if she's not involved now it's not for any you know negative reason what's the drama she went and had a baby yeah that's that's dramatic and you know we 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 record or i record on you know like the seventh floor walk up of a of a building you know when you're pregnant or having you know pregnancy related nausea yeah no i'm not gonna force anybody to do that to to walk up those stairs so it was a normal transition and ultimately I'm so grateful for having had her in the beginning because it really helped me gain confidence and to know that, you know, 
I wasn't in it alone. Now I'm, I'm comfortable, but same thing with the photographers, with the book, you know, there's this idea that going at something alone is very daunting and having the input, creative input of other people like photographers is huge. And also with the first book, you know, I was really like, okay, I, I know who I want this, the audience to be of this book, but ultimately the photographer, Teresa Fay was also like, I learned from shooting with her and she would ask questions like, so why is this particular, she hadn't read the book yet because I mean, she read bits and pieces, but you know, she was shooting without having it having been finished. So, you know, as we're shooting, she's like, you know, why is this place so important? And so I'd, I'd tell her why I'm including it. And she's like, oh, that's so interesting. And the reason I was very reassured by those conversations is because she had been here like nine times. So it was helpful to know whether these stories were going to interest someone who had been here a bunch of times. Would this be totally new and novel to someone who had been here a bunch? The unexpected thing was that the book ended up appealing to even first-time visitors, but that wasn't the, you know, that wasn't the original target. So same thing with the second book. I needed a photographer based here because it was going to be a rolling shoot. You know, we had like over 40 women to photograph. Like you can't compact that into two weeks. And so I wanted to work with someone I trusted, someone that has um, I've worked with before. So she's photographed a number of my other stories and that I, I knew that I knew she'd be professional. I knew I could talk to her. I knew I could get her advice. And so Joanne Pye was the best person for me to work with. Um, and so it was a dream. Uh, you know, we're still talking about the book, even though it's, you know, she's sort of like, okay, it feels like it was, you know, already a million years ago, but it's, it's just because the, f the first copy hasn't come into our hands yet. But, and that again, made me feel very reassured that I could say like, I'm not sure about this. What do you think? I need your opinion. Same thing with the cover. Obviously it's not, it's ultimately not anyone else's decision, but I needed other people's advice. Yeah. So her, I spoke to my best friend in New York. I spoke to Jackie Kai Ellis, who's another, um, she's a Canadian author, stylist, consultant living in Paris and who has a very keen eye for design. And so I got her opinion at one point. Collaborating or even just seeking outside advice is hugely important. And I think if you remain in your little bubble, it won't help you move forward. And I mean, that's saying that I think Jay and I are always... We've known each other for three years now, but since we've really started working together, it's, it's, you know, it's always been Jay's content. You know, it's been his channel. You know, he's always been doing his own content. And I really came on to help more on the business side of things and the editing. But, you know, as we started in the podcast and, you know, I'm feeling like I now need to, to step forward a little bit with the content mm -hmm. as well. And, and you know, we, we discussed this this morning about, uh, about this podcast and about, you know, how we're going to structure this and, and going forward. So that's a discussion we, we are having ongoing. And, you know, the, the whole idea of this podcast is to really talk about this process, like the, the entire process around us building this publishing house and the film studio and, and the podcast is a big part of that. So we'll be talking about that more as we go along. Like when we make decisions about things, we'll, we'll talk about them on the podcast here. And that's, that's exciting. Yeah. It's exciting to, to, to experience it with other people too. Yeah. Kind of like you're saying, there is something daunting about going going it alone. I think part of the struggle in collaboration for me in the past as well has been, and I don't know if you felt this way, I've leaned into writing a lot because in the past when I was trying to do a lot of filmmaking, found that it was really hard to find the right people to collaborate mm -hmm. with. So even if you got to a place where you had people that would show up, you would end up doing an inordinate amount of the work or it just wouldn't, you know, wouldn't go the way you were hoping or people would be late or there were a lot more encumbrances. And so finding ways to rely 
largely on yourself or on myself was kind of a defense mechanism Mm -hmm. and in some ways good, but in some ways not. And so pushing myself to make sure that I'm putting in the extra work to, to find the right people and build up the right team element, I think is something that's, is really, really important to me because I don't want to go it alone. And then I'm lucky to find the people that I have been able to find. So, I mean, look at the end of the day, it's important to know that you can depend on yourself, but you also have to see where strengths are outside of you and who has maybe other interesting contacts that contacts or um, perspectives or, uh, perspectives or, you know, a different type of audience that when combined will really create some sort of a, you know, a mega product or a mega, Mm. you know, book or whatever it is. And that's not negligible. It just takes time to figure out who those people are and that everybody gets something out of it. Collaboration is not my strong suit in a lot of ways, and I'm working on it. But it's, I, we were talking about this this morning, though, too, is because I think part of it, for me, there's a caution in wanting to make sure, and also maybe an undervaluing of myself, but wanting to make sure that whatever I'm, I want to bring a lot to the table, and I want to be as generous as I can be. And then there's also that reluctance to... Because my brand, especially, I guess my brand is so personal. We're in the business and, side of it, so we can in the right. Yeah, side yeah, of the yeah. But, it's, but I mean, just because like that that side of things is also there's a there's a real personal level to it where it's very tied to my identity and very tied to me. I f- I feel like to be responsible with what I'm building, I have to be really cautious with. Oh with, no, but that's that's I, totally normal. Yeah. All right. I want to jump back a little bit as well. We we discussed. Uh, you, you mentioned before, I think, about business, and I, I said I was going to flag that to come back. Oh to it boy! Before. And maybe I can tie this into a little bit about your 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 book somehow. Here, I'll try mm-hmm. and segue this because your book really talks about, you know, the, the cliche of the Parisian woman, and it really takes that head on. And and you talk to a lot of different women there, and and show you try to demythologize that, or, mm-hmm. or you know, the, these women have made a real mark on on the city. And I think one of the other cliches that you've tackled a lot in uh, across your articles and, and that is this idea that while Paris is a, a real paradise for creatives and for artists, it's a complete hell for um, starting a business. And I know you mentioned it is a, it is a hustle, but you know, I've also, you, you've talked, you, you've showcased a lot of wonderful young businesses. Um, I mean, your most recent podcast episode was with Holy, Holy Belly, Belly guys yeah. and listening to them. And, and I know those guys as well being, you know, one of the, best places to get brunch in, in the city. I've, I've been a long time consumer there, but I always like to hear Nico talk because he is so positive about it and he has jumped into his business and, and he and Sarah have done such a great job of building it up very quickly. So I want you to kind of challenge that a little bit that, that particularly for us who, you know, Jay has been working here as a, a, an entrepreneur, um, a micro entrepreneur, what do mm-hmm. we call it? What the, the classification is here, but to, to go where we're going, he's going to need to go well, very quickly. We're pushing up against the, the maximum revenue thresholds yep. that that, that uh, allows and so i don't know about that quickly but well you know you, you got to the point now that <laughs> i got to the point now i mean uh, it, it's a low threshold i mean the the, the way the french yeah, government yeah. works here is they allow you to be a micro entrepreneur but only if you earn a very small amount of money basically and, and you and can't make any deductions from that exactly in that status yeah, yeah i mean i i I'm not in that status because, you know, you have one good year and then you quickly realize you're going to need to get out of that. Also, it's if you have ambition, if you limit yourself to that, form, you know, that status, it's sort yeah. of you're limiting your own possibilities. Yeah, um, so. What I will say is that there's the difficulties in a big society or restaurant. And those challenges are very different when you have staff. You know, and and Nico is very positive, uh, Nico from Holy Belly, but uh, he's also very real. And in recent months, you know, on Instagram especially, he will document the 
pure madness from what it costs to get things repaired and the lack of professional, you know, or lack of work ethic among some of these contractors to how much he pays in labor charges for Mm. his staff. And the thing is, is in France, when you do start to have a lot of staff and you do have those bills that pile up, regardless of how you're doing, I mean, it can create a serious cash flow issue. Um, And a lot of businesses go through this and they don't necessarily talk about it. And I honestly think there should be more camaraderie between them because, you know, having that support um, could help them overcome certain barriers or the feeling that they're like somehow you know, the only ones going through this massive wallet thinning. Us independents who don't have a shop, but who work for themselves, I'm what's called, I'm under profession libérale, so I'm an independent worker. And it is a kind of société, but I don't, you know, I don't, I'm, it's, I, it's not like an SIS or an SIRL or anything like that. But what's very tricky about it is I do pay social charges. I have to contribute to this, you know, sort of obligatory retirement called CIPAV. And that's based on obviously how well you do. And so if you do really well at some point, you'll have a lot to pay. And actually the percentage is around 23% for strictly the retirement amount. So, mm. you know, and and those payments, I want to say are per trimester or something. So it's about 23%. If and, and there's no matching. Obviously, I don't have a company to match that contribution. If you are a salaried worker in a company, the percent that you actually pay is around 14% out of your salary that goes toward retirement and the company matches. Well, that's the difference because, uh, you know, audiences in, a, in Australia and America, you know, will have the idea of the retirement thing is it's your retirement. You put that money away. Very it's, individualistic, it's, yes. Yeah. Here, when you say you're putting money to retirement, you're putting it to the pool that then you, yeah. you earn points for and then when you retire, you get the pension. And, right. and so it's not your own retirement. And so... That's that's might be a very difficult concept for Americans and Australians to come and, and, and deal with here. But well, and that's what we've been talking about that a lot this week. Similar conversations that sound like to what you're having this morning. And I had a mini freak out this this week too, because not there's I think part of it is the the forced ignorance within the system as well, where you can't it feels like often you can't get a straight answer to a simple question within the bureaucracy. Yeah, that's mostly true. Where yeah. you reach out <laughs> and you're just like, hey, what? I mean, like even from immigration, your experience in immigrating to, which Zach has been going through this week as well, to, yeah, these tax questions where you're like, wait, like, but what does this income specifically count as? And like a lot of questions that I feel like you end up bouncing around. And when you come to like the professionalism side of things often even just getting somebody to respond to your question and reaching out and saying hey that that thing that i asked you about three times this week could you get back to me like kind of urgent no yeah yeah well the other thing you have to consider is that if you're an author too and it's not like brand work it's not for an advertising company um and it's not like a um and it's not journalism you can be part of AGSA, which is sort of like La Maison des Artistes, but for authors. One and of the that, I'm supposed to be doing, yeah. And your social charges are are lower for that. Um, yeah, TVA or VAT on books is a lot less as well. So if you're selling books, it's right. 5.5%. No, there, there. Are, once you understand, but it, 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 it's about connecting also with like-minded people, which is why this is a good exercise for you guys because we all have gone through it. We've all had to lean on other people for recommendations. Like I didn't miraculously discover my accountant. They were recommended to me, you know, like 
that means we've all had to talk to each other and be like, oh, I'm dealing with this nightmare. Do you have anybody who does this, 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 and this? I mean, well, and the thing is, I think too, we, we, I, I'm sure to many at home, we're coming across as a little bit gripey for living, living a dream. And there is that level of like, I'm very appreciative to be here. I really appreciate the, 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 I was going to say spin, but the reframing that you put on that as far as like, as well, like, yeah, we're paying into systems that are very good and the, this is an expensive place to live, but it also provides us with an amazing standard of living and, like, mm-hmm. and so many, so many good things that come out of it. It is, like you said, helpful to also hear uh, from somebody else who's, who's been there or is going through it as well, because, uh, yeah, I, I definitely this week was, it's scary. It gets scary at times, you know, yeah. like we have to, with my husband, he works for a company. So you know, there's, there's far more stability in that. And we have to like sit down and do the numbers and think about, okay, how much are each of us contributing to the household like pool? And then what are some of the constant fees we have coming out? We've got income tax or, you know, we've got tax d'habitation, which, which we just got and was like, excuse me. (laughs) Um, There are all of these things that pop up. And if you're not sitting down and having those conversations, your own business just adds extra weight and, and a feeling of stress. Yep. So these are things we need to be talking about. And the people who like are trying to say that they can figure it out themselves, I'm telling you, you can't figure it out entirely on your own and that's okay. Yeah. Yep. Well, and that's, people. that is part of the, like we've got, we've, we're making some shifts within the people that we're looking to for help uh, this week and it should be good. I think that that is part of the question that I've had and I've been looking at it because especially with what I want to do as far as working in fiction, wanting to grow both the publishing side, but also the, you know, hopefully getting into the film stuff in the next uh, five-ish years or so as well and thinking long-term, like what does that look like then? Like which businesses which side of the the atlantic do i build things on Mm -hmm. because not only is it trying to think in terms of like okay like if i try to build something here that could become super uh cumbersome very quickly um and it's all there's also that side of like the english speaking what elements of it need to be in those arenas the filmmaking side of things does it have to be closer to los angeles does it have to be something in new york those are questions that that are also coming up. And so I honestly this year, because, because things have grown and been really exciting. I see it. The reason that it gets frustrating for me too, is like, I've not raised my standard of living at all for the last few years. Well, a little bit, I, I eat better than I did a couple <laughs> years ago. That's for sure. When I was eating like what I got tipped, but, um, you know, for me, I want, I want to reinvest. I want to be investing in my team. I want to be finding space for us. I want to be making sure that we have the right tools. I want to, I want to take everything I'm earning and pour back into it. And that's where I also feel I was, I was complaining about this uh, to some French friends the other day, because we, that's what you do when you're hanging out with a bunch of French people, which is great. Um, was that I feel like here I am trying to build this thing. I'm paying my taxes. I'm showing up. I'm, I'm doing my thing. I'm trying to do everything on the right side of uh, the table, the law, the whatever. And uh, and here I am just trying to build a thing that'll do even better. And every time you try to reinvest, you try to grow, you try to do whatever, it feels like you get punished for it. Right. And which isn't entirely fair of a way to frame it, but that's really how it feels. And so that discouragement then as well Mm -hmm. of being like, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Like, why am I trying to build and invest in this country when all it's doing to me is being like, oh, you, oh no, you can pay us more. 
like mm-hmm. to, to be here basically. And so that is a level of frustration for me that I, I don't want, I also don't want that to poison me, but yeah, I don't know. But getting guidance from people who based on your project and based on your growth ambitions, like would be able to tell you maybe you need to be incorporated in America and you know, maybe you need to think of this, 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 and this, you know, there, it's not impossible. I mean, the good thing about being a U.S. citizen is you can easily create, you know, an LLC or something in the U.S. and then you pay corporate tax, but you pay income tax here, like whatever. There are ways around it, but it's about finding the right people to guide you. So that's also, you know, an important way to feel less like this is just, you know, one heavy burden. And every time you turn the corner, you're getting slapped with something else. But it also means, okay, you got to find the right people. And that's really hard. I mean, I've, I've had a number of meetings with accountants and lawyers, and it always feels like they look at me like, you want to do what? I don't... I, like, why I'm are you not, doing that? I do. Well, no, they'll be like, that sounds fine. That sounds great. I don't know what to... You know, like, there's just that... There's that... that barrier in the on the knowledge side of things as well so finding the you're right finding the right people is very helpful it's been good because on the american side and on the french side i've approached i've talked to lawyers whatever everything that i want to do the strategies that i've been thinking about they're like that sounds like a great strategy i don't see anything wrong with that i don't know how to implement it but you know Mm. that's that's pretty good like and so it's it seems like consistently they're like i could do this half for you but i don't know how that would interact with the other half and uh so you're totally right And, and i i feel like kind of to what you were saying earlier as far as just like the path we have to take and it's not going to be easy mm-hmm. and you have to figure this out for yourself. And that's just the way that my life is going to be probably for the rest of it. It's and coming to terms with that in a sense, but also taking that perspective and looking at it from the way that you were talking about it earlier and just saying, you know what, this is just the way it is. And it's going to be tough. Nothing to pull a cliche out. We were going to be doing cliche bingo, but we haven't started that, mm-hmm. but you know, nothing, uh, nothing worth having is easy or nothing worth doing is easy. Right. And that actually for me as at least individually, uh, that, that kind of reframing puts it in the sense of a challenge. And I, then I look forward to it in a way that I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to overcome this. I'm going to beat this, which is where much, much more where I would rather be than sitting around being like, Oh, like why do they, why do the French hate me so much? Yes. It's, it's, they're universally discriminatory. It's not just you. (laughs) No, I'm teasing, but it's, I mean, I think you have to, people end up weighing like, do I want this project more than I want my life in France? Yeah. Yeah. And then some people leave because they feel like they, couldn't and I'm not saying this is going to be true for you I'm saying that for some people whatever it is that they're trying to do is better served in another country yep. their home country or another you know yep. wherever and some people are like no it has to work here because my life is here and I don't plan on sacrificing that for me that's the case so I have to make this work yeah and I think you know for both of you Paris has given you guys a lot I mean you built for your, sure. 100%. your whole business that's, around Paris yeah. so you know it has given a lot in that sense but it, yeah it, it takes its takes us um it's it's a it's more of a s- slower yeah. steady yeah. yeah yeah which can burn. also be good and i think that's also it's good to have this conversation in so many ways but also because that with the growth in the direction and we as a team are going to be sitting down and talking even more about like this next year and how do we approach it mm. i'm kind of wondering if part of that is to tone back the short-term ambitions for long-term ambitions if that makes sense because the short-term bursts i would really love to just run out of the gate and do as much as possible but i feel like right now the farther and faster you try to run the more barnacles to mix my metaphors (laughs) but the you know the deeper the mud the nastier the quicksand i'm not sure what it is but you know like the faster you try to go the more encumbrances well because you might run into the administrative hurdles which is like but you didn't think about this this and this yeah 
So this is going to slow you down. You're going to have to do, you know, 20 hours of paperwork now. So you, you slow your roll, pal. Not <laughs> even mentioning the, uh, the the arbitrary nature of the beer cut you're sitting across the table from when they're like, oh, I know we didn't tell you about these four things, but you should have known about it. And I now I want you to go do it. I will say that's worse in immigration. That's true. And to be fair, the, my, my, hand, my dealings with like URSAF and, and those kinds of like those, those offices, they are generally nice. The, the tax people were really nice. They're well, like, yeah, we'd we'll love like, to take your money. Let's, let's find a way for it to work so that you can pay us what you owe us. That's true. I think that, that's uh, a wrap. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great conversation. That's plenty. Sorry we yeah. went down the, uh, no worries. the perilous road of paying taxes in Paris. Lindsay, thank you so much for coming Thanks on for the having podcast. Me. Really appreciate having you yeah, here. Thanks, for Lindsay. those of you that uh, haven't seen it yet, be sure to go check out the video that we recorded where Lindsay showed me around her hood, which is fantastic. Had a grand old time. And uh, yeah, you can catch her, of course. Make sure you grab her new book, The New Parisienne, in April of 2020. If you're listening to this in the future, you can, you can right find now. it wherever books are sold. Uh, but of course, if you're listening to this in advance, make sure you pre-order it. And thanks again, Lindsay. Thanks. Man, that, that was a fantastic conversation. I feel I feel pumped up. Like I, I, I wouldn't say that talking about taxes or business structure gets me super excited in life at any point, but I will say that talking to Lindsay has left me feeling a little bit better about the world, especially because I'm not alone. <laughs> there are people like Lindsay that have gone through these things and survived as well. Uh, but also, I don't know, there's just something about talking with her and then having listened to the conversation again later that gives me a greater sense of hope than I think trying to go through all, through all of this alone yeah yeah the the fact that people have been here and done it you know one thing she said that that people often come here you know they start a business and they either decide no they can't do the business here in paris and leave or they said no i have to make it work because paris is where i want to be and that's our situation we know that we want to be in paris and, and make the business work and so we need to you know we need to listen to other people who have made their businesses work in paris and, and figure out how they've done it because it is a very different system on that you know i, I want to at the end of every episode we try to find some action points from our discussion and and use those to go forward to keep ourselves accountable and for this one i'll start with the the dry um, business one first yeah uh, dryness yeah uh, she said it really struck a chord with me the way she said that in paris really you have to it's, it's word of mouth a lot of these things you if you try and, and we have tried to find accountants and lawyers and, and these sort of people by by going and, and Googling and, and doing what we do in the States or in, in Australia by searching for them normally and, and expecting a reply. Um, but here you really do need word of mouth and you need you need personal recommendations and, and introductions. And so that's, I think, our first thing is is we really need to double down and find an accountant because we need someone who really knows what, you know, we need to find someone who can help us with our particular situation. Yep. And, and as we discussed in the episode, a lot of people say, oh yeah, that sounds okay, I can do this, but I can't help with this. But we need to really find an accountant, particularly to look at business structure, because we need to nail that down. That's our, our top priority from a business side. So mm -hmm. action point number one, find an accountant and, and, and secure your business structure um, the way it's, it's gonna work best for the future. Yeah, and Lindsay talked about surrounding yourself with the right people, and that's that's I think the accountant is number one on the immediate new things to add. But I think it also leads perfectly into another action point, which is getting the team we already have together to have an open discussion about how we move forward together into the new year. Uh, which we're already into the new year by the time you're listening to this, but as we record it, we're rolling over right now, and so that's going to be an easy one to knock out. So next week or in two weeks episode we're going to sit down with the entire team in the office before we lose it forever and we're going to talk about where we're going and how everyone fits in yeah that, that's a great idea i think it's a, it's a great idea to understand the the full scope of our project to to make sure everyone on the team is is you know has the same idea that that our vision for where we're going that 
everyone is shared in that vision and understands it. And also a little bit of a discussion of the strengths and weaknesses of everyone in the team. And, you know, so that we're all aware and we're all going through this, uh, you know, we're all on the same path together. And for everyone who's listening out there to, you know, introduce Kate and Zach so that, you know, you guys are aware of who's on the team and who's doing things behind the scenes. Yeah. It's and great. it's gonna, It's also kind of going to be, a, I think it'll be a really fun touch point to look back on in the future and just be like, yeah, oh, absolutely. I remember those days <laughs> when Gustav was sleeping in the corner. Today's podcast was made possible by my magnanimous patrons whose contributions directly impact our work here as well as the future of the project. They are the best. And if you're one of them, thank you. And if you want to hear the uncut version of this episode, a longer version with even more chatter with Lindsay Tremuda, then go jump on Patreon right now and you can get a private screening of just such an episode. Building the Oracle is mixed and produced by Zach Egan, co-hosted by Richard Bilkey, mascotted proudly by his four-legged friend Gustav, and is written and hosted by yours truly. Our theme music is Glory by David Cutter and our ad music is Light, who you can also find and support directly on Patreon. And our newsletter is assembled with love by our own Kate Weber. Don't forget, you can support us at patreon.com slash jswanson whenever that itch grows too strong to resist. And don't forget to rate and review Building the Oracle on iTunes or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts, but especially iTunes or Gustav is going to pee on your sofa. My name is Jay Swanson, and thank you again for listening. Tune back in in two weeks for our next guests, ourselves. Until then, keep making rad shit. <laughs>